I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. This episode's remarkable guest is Paul Theroux, whose name I mispronounced throughout the entire interview. He's one of the best-known travel writers in the world. The Great Railway Bazaar, a book about his epic railway trip from the UK to Japan and back, is considered a classic in travel writing. You've probably also heard of The Mosquito Coast. This book won the James Tall Black Memorial Prize in 1981, and it was made into a movie in 1986. In 2015, the Royal Geographical Society awarded him the Royal Medal for, quote, the encouragement of geographical discovery through travel writing. Other recipients of this medal include Sir Edmund Hillary, Admiral Richard Byrd, and Dr. Thor Heyerdahl. In this episode, you'll learn why getting your book banned isn't necessarily a bad thing, how travel teaches you that you're small and the world is big, the power of walking and biking to encourage the writing muse, and how to survive a year of travel along the Mexican-U.S. border. Paul currently lives in Massachusetts and Hawaii. This interview was conducted while he was on the North Shore of Hawaii, where people may know him more as a paddler and a farmer than a writer. We went a little overboard with our discussion of Hawaii, but Hawaii is a remarkable place. The podcast starts with a discussion of a Hawaiian term, bulai. It's the pidgin word for lying. I think it's a slightly cleaned up version of bullshit. This episode of Remarkable People is brought to you by Remarkable, the paper tablet company. Yes, you got that right. Remarkable is sponsored by Remarkable. I have version 2 in my hot little hands, and it's so good. A very impressive upgrade. Here's how I use it. 1. Taking notes while I'm interviewing a podcast guest. 2. Taking notes while being brief about speaking gigs. 3. Drafting the structure of keynote speeches. 4. Storing manuals for the gizmos that I buy. 5. Roughing out drawings for things like surfboards, surfboard sheds, and office layouts. 6. Wrapping my head around complex ideas with diagrams and flowcharts. This is a remarkably well thought out product. It doesn't try to be all things to all people, but it takes notes better than anything I've used. Check out the recent reviews of the latest version. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. And now, here is the remarkable Paul Theroux. I have not read or heard the term bulai for about 40 years. And so when I read your book, I just loved it. And I'd, I'd never seen it spelled out. So I had to look that up. Bulleye. I love that term. Yeah. The so trouble you, with pigeon you is it's hard, it's hard actually to, to find a definitive spelling because sometimes say bulai or bulaya. <laughs> but yeah, well, anyway, that's good. So you'll recognize yeah. a lot of the book of this particular book that other people won't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I do have a question, though. Sure. Like, why do you spell house it, H-O-W apostrophe S-I-T, as opposed to H-O-W-Z-I-T? <laughs> I think that was probably the proofreader um, <laughs> okay. corrected it. Yeah. Okay. It. Yeah. Because you certainly have pigeon down pat in that book. And... Well, thanks. I've lived here more than 30 years, and I hear it all the time. Most people I know speak pigeon. Surfers, yeah. I paddle, I have a outrigger canoe. So I go paddling twice a week with guys. They don't know I'm a writer. I mean, they just, 
one time I was paddling and I'm an old guy in, a, in an outrigger. And they said, how's it? You want to run with us? Run with us. I, I yeah. said, okay. So we, now we paddle. They speak pigeon all the time. So and so that's kind of I'm always hearing it. I have never completely lost it. And at one point in my life, I decided that people don't try to rid themselves of their British accent or their southern accent or their why should I have to try to lose my pigeon accent? Although I don't think it makes you necessarily sound too intelligent, but I've no, no, never I, completely lost it. The thing is, I, I've had these discussions with, with these guys, with these paddlers. Yeah. They're, they're Hawaiian, and one of them speaks Hawaiian. And we, we talk about that a lot, of not only pidgin, but, but Hawaiian. And I said, if you lose your language, you lose a whole vocabulary of culture, which is essential to who you are. That the first thing that colonialists do is take language away from people. And when the missionaries came to Hawaii, they didn't allow Hawaiians to to speak or pidgin, but also Hawaiian in the schools. When you lose your language, you actually lose your, your culture. If you want to find a way into a culture, I, I, I went to Africa when I was 22. And I was a teacher. I was a Peace Corps teacher in the middle of Africa. The first thing I did was learn the language. It was called Chichewa. So it's spoken in Mozambique, Malawi, bit of Zambia. So I, I spoke it. When I, when I learned it, I suddenly not only had a lot of friends, but I had access to the culture. So you have a greater understanding of Hawaii, even though you haven't lived here, I guess, in, much in your adult life. That's who you are, and that's that's yes. your access to the to the culture. So it's a great thing, I think. When I take my family to Hawaii, and of course our first step is zippies, yeah. uh, when I drop into pigeon, my family can barely understand what I'm saying. So it's it's quite hilarious. Yeah, well, um, there you go. <laughs> so you said you have an outrigger, but... Are you a surfer? Because your book shows great understanding of surfing and the breaks in Hawaii and all the good stuff. How did you come to master all of that? Uh, just by living here, I didn't study it. But uh, as I said, over the thing that well, well, we lived in Manoa. Sheila, whom you know, was married before and had a, had a, a, a house in Manoa. So we lived when we first got together. We lived in that house. I really didn't like it. You know. Honolulu, Kali Valley, for example, housed very close together there. And what I all, what I craved <laughs> was elbow room. Now, I live here on seven acres. Not many people have this amount of elbow room. I mean, but when I bought it 20, 22, 23 years ago, it was, it, 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 oh, was it? No, no, it wasn't. 28 years ago. It was, I bought it in 1992, whenever that country, 28, let's say. <laughs> so I thought, I got to get out of listening to other people's radio. You know, you hear the radio next door, or the, someone saying, pass the, you know, the, you could smell the teriyaki sauce of the talk. I, just the idea of being in such close proximity to other people. People live very close together in Hawaii, and I needed to, to get away from it. So, that's the long answer to when, when I moved out of Honolulu, I moved into a place with its own culture, its own rules, actually. Uh, 
And the, basically, it's surfer's paradise, but it's also it's a lot of traditional Hawaiian uh, sites here, ceremonial sites and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I don't know anyone who, when, when I'm on the beach, I'm sometimes sitting in a chair writing. People come up and say, oh, local guys, or they say, what are you writing? What are you doing? Because it's such a crazy thing to, reading or writing doesn't figure in the lives of people on the North Shore. So <laughs> what does is surfing and the geography of the North Shore is defined by breaks. You say it happened at Chun's Reef or Lani's or Waimea or you said Pipeline or Leftovers, Alligators, Himalayas, Avalanche. That's how people define where you are. I saw an accident at Chun's. That's what people start. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just the way life goes on here. So it's not it's not hard. You, if you're if you're reasonably attentive, you, yeah, you can but, kind of figure it out. But my, it's one thing to to know where the breaks are and their names. But this book, it goes into the emotions of surfing, which how did you get that without being a surfer is what I'm asking. I suppose that's that's part of the imaginative aspect of fiction, which is the kind of ventriloquism or becoming another person. Or, I mean, I've interrogated people about it, but also I've been a paddler in the 19... 19- 80s, mid-80s, I took up paddling, paddling a kayak. It was in the, on the East Coast. And I, and I wrote a book about called The Happy Isles of Oceania, where I paddled on 53 islands in the Pacific, Tonga, Samoa, New Guinea, Australia. I went to Easter Island, Tahiti, the Marquesas, name it. And I was always paddling, often... <laughs> Un, unwillingly, but but of necessity, surfing a kayak. So I can I can surf a kayak. I'm not great at it, but I can do it. And when you see people surfing, it, it it's something you need to watch. You 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 can't actually get it out of a book. You get it from other people and from the experience of it. So as a paddler, as a resident, I think probably that accounts for it. But it does help to have some sense of the water. And here's yes. what I think about Hawaii in general. Hawaii is not inhabited islands. It's not just volcanic islands. It's the it's the surf, it's the water, it's the it's everything around Hawaii. A lot of people come here and they think especially I suppose tourists, so, but other people too. Because, but they think you're just you're on land. You're not on land. It's like being on a boat, and the water matters to you. And the farther you go out in the water, you realize there's a whole life in the water. Pe- pe- fishermen, swimmers, surfers, and you get out, and you actually the best view of Hawaii is from the water when you're when you're offshore and you see it. So the the water is also part of the Hawaiian experience. I always felt that to be the case, but also I I, I conscientiously studied it to, to try to understand the relationship between the water and the land. And I mean, that's actually, that's the defining aspect, I suppose, of, of, of the book. Although the book is really about a guy 
who has a problem. <laughs> I mean, he, he has. A, I mean, he he kills a guy, uh, hits a guy on a bike, and doesn't know who it is, and it has to kind of figure it out. But so it's not about surfing, but it's about. I would say it's also about aging. You know, it's about getting old. Is, and, uh, is, is Sharky your alter ego? In in one sense, yeah, he's kind of an alter ego, maybe evil twin, because he doesn't read. There are a lot of people here, they just think a book is just a problem. You know, like, don't give me a book, I'll have to read it. So in a sense, an alter ego, I, I suppose. But I, I, a lot of what I feel about aging or Losing your mojo, you know, I mean, when these Hawaiian guys said, um, you can run with us, I thought, great, you know, because if I have a problem, they'll help me. And, and in fact, now and then you do have a huli, you, you, and you go over and you get, get back in the boat. And these guys are, are good. They're strong. They're very good. Um, you know, they're, they're workmen. They work at Schofield. They're, they're, they're cleaners and handymen. So and they're the grass. I mean, I don't want to go... Sp- paddling with a bunch of writers that would be that would be horrible it'd be horrible there'd be a bunch of selfish unbalanced people but the idea of real real paddlers so that that so in that sense yeah Sharky is Sharky feels he's he's losing it you're a young guy so you don't know this but but um there's there's this, there's a tipping point i suppose where you think there's things I have a kayak that's very heavy. It's hard to put on the roof rack. It wasn't always that heavy. It used to, I used to, you know, <laughs> sling it on the roof rack. But Maybe it's waterlogged. No, it's not. It's just heavy. It weighs 60 pounds. <laughs> but that's the kayak that I took. I mean, I, I paddle all around New Guinea and the Trobriand Islands with that. It's a kayak that you can assemble. It's a, a mm-hmm. folding kayak. It's German. It's, mm-hmm. The German military used it. So it's great, great you can fix it you can paddle but anyway you notice it I mean I suppose maybe surfers at a certain point say my, my board is getting heavy I gotta get a lighter board or something I, I put a handle in my board because it's too hard to carry <laughs> but you know the, the other thing about it is there's a whole aspect of surfing that's changed that that I know the older the surfers who are over 65 70 especially the ones over 70 they still surf Jock Sutherland, for example, who's a tremendous surfer, was surfing, has been surfing. He's 74, I think. Still surf, but he makes his money fixing. He's a roofer. So it's also, that's part of the book too, which is the whole nature of surfing has changed. So that what people used to be fun. Who's the best surfer? The one having the most fun. That's the great surfer. Now it's, who's a great surfer? It's the one with the most endorsements. Or there's a lot of competition out there and, and a lot of fancy moves that people make. So the, the book is also about that transition that a guy feeling, it's not, it's not young guys out shredding the waves anymore. It's, it's guys wanting their picture on and surfers journal and um and getting um an endorsement you know because right. there's, there's money in it for a very very small number of surfers there's a lot of money yes. for the others they're just on the waves but <laughs> yeah it's also dangerous but- it's risky mm-hmm. yes just yesterday a guy he's in the hospital now shaughnessy he was at pipeline and mm-hmm. he wiped out and got, it badly banged his head on the reef, and he was unconscious. Guys went out for him, but he was wearing a helmet. But his helmet was all smashed. 
So you know, the average person doesn't realize that non-surfer that, that you're better off wearing a helmet you know, on certain places that, you know they, they think ah oh, it's just a bunch of you know like dudes just running but actually you do need protection in some places that's kind of interesting that that, yeah. that you can not only drown but you can have your, have your head cracked in <laughs> so uh, my friends and acquaintances have always up up here have generally been surfers you you, you get a plumber and you say the plumber will say I'm coming tomorrow and then he doesn't come and because the surf's up he said well I was surfing but I'll come I'll definitely do it tomorrow <laughs> so everyone's a part-time surfer I think the great guys are actually the people who do it for fun part-time I love it when the when the plumber says I'll definitely come and then he he's he's surfing I think well there's a guy living his life yeah. I can I can wait another day I don't care uh, or fix so, it like jock on the roof or do you hang out with John John Florence and Jamie O'Brien I uh, not with O'Brien I know John John and his mother um, yeah. Garrett McNamara is a very good friend of mine yeah um, he lives doesn't he have a house in Mokolea or yeah, Wailo or someplace exactly down there? Yeah. Mokolea and yeah, but he's that's part of his income. It's like a Airbnb. But I wrote uh -huh. a piece about him for Smithsonian about riding the big wave at Nazare, and when I knew him before then, but then I I saw him and I said, "Did you write about this?" And he said, "Well, yeah." And he, so he, someone wrote a book about it. But I said, "I want to I want to write about it, but in a way to use it as a motivational piece, how to ride a monster." And in fact, I I suggested. We write a book together. How to ride a monster? Huh. What do you do? Because a lot of it's mental. It's 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 <laughs> yeah. psyching yourself up for it. When you're in a seventy-eight foot wave, it's not just about experience. It's about where is your mind at? Where is your serenity? How do you how do you stay calm on the way? You know, going up and down the way. Well, he... So we talked about that. But we never wrote the book, but I, I wrote the piece. It was in the Smithsonian about maybe two years ago. It was a cover story. Mm -hmm. I love the guy. I think he's a great guy. And his brother, Liam, is also a good surfer. He's a much tougher <laughs> character. But, um, Gar you know, the other thing about <laughs> surfers is they come from nowhere. They're just from nowhere. They're not necessarily educated or anything like that. They're just, they've just been, they start out skateboarding or, and then they end up, and then they start, leave skateboarding and they start surfing. <laughs> And they just do it with a passion. So that's kind of admirable. I understand people who do things with that amount of uh, passion. Thank God that I took up surfing at 60. Because if I had taken up surfing when I was a kid in Hawaii, there is no way that I would have accomplished what I accomplished in my career. I am truly addicted. I'm going to go surfing right after this this recording um, will you will you wear a wetsuit oh yeah <laughs> it's yeah. 50 degrees in the water yeah now. that's yeah. what i thought yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you've surfed in hawaii haven't you at 60 i never surfed until literally i never surfed until 60 that's a really? little late to start oh yeah and but and I you know what that, but but surfing without a wetsuit and a lot of paraphernalia that that might make it easier well, but I don't live in Hawaii. And, <laughs> and you know what? Hawaii has coral and, and sea urchins that 
I don't have to deal with here. So that's some positive. No, that's true too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Garrett, Garrett, and I were both Mercedes-Benz brand ambassadors, so we know each other that way. How how were um, you a, a Mercedes brand ambassador? I know he was, but how yeah. were you? In what sense? How did you become a, a, a Mercedes brand oh, ambassador? Well, you know, Garrett McNamara is a world-class surfer. Roger Federer is a world-class tennis player. And somehow Mercedes believed that I was a world-class evangelist or marketer or something, social media user, and I wasn't going to disavow them of that oh, opinion. No, oh, oh, I see. So, so okay. <laughs> yep, That's great, so, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have to also compliment you that that section about the Punahou and Roosevelt dynamics, that was just brilliant. I mean, it's like so true to life. I went to Iolani, which would have been even worse, but oh my God, the Punahou Roosevelt dynamics in that book is just fantastic. And I, I've been, when I was a kid, I got hijacked on a public, you know, bus twice. So I could just relate to almost everything you, really? you were saying. Yeah, who, yeah. Who hijacked you? I don't know, two mokes. <laughs> so it was, it was a formative experience. Have, have you have you come to embrace eating spam? Have you has that entered into your culinary repertoire? No, <laughs> I'm not a spam. <laughs> so you're not local yet. No, no, no. I, you mentioned zippies. I'm I'm down with zippies. I'm zippies all the time. But 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 spam is not. Here's my take on spam. Okay, I wrote about that. I told you. So in, in this book, uh, The Happy Isles of Oceania, I, it's all about island, island culture, spam, corned beef, pea soupo, they call it in Samoa, all that. And, and I reached the conclusion, maybe a flawed conclusion, that we're the great spam eaters. They're in islands noted for a history of cannibalism and I, I started to think that spam that spam approximates the taste of human flesh it, you know, they, they call they call in New Guinea they call humans long pig you know they're eating each other and I thought spam just reminds me of something it, it, it's it's like there's something corpse like oh about it so well, so where do you find spam eaters? Fiji, they used to eat cannibals. I don't know. Okay. I see where you're Tonga. going. <laughs> Waimea I, Valley. I'm friends with uh, Andrew Zimmern. Uh, bizarre foods, Andrew Zimmern. You know, he yep. goes all over the world eating bizarre foods. And spam is one of the only foods that Andrew Zimmern will not eat. Just FYI. So tell him what I said. Yeah, I will. I will. I absolutely will. I described that. I described that in, in the book. I mean, you could point him <laughs> to the book, but okay. it's a fa it's a, what I'm saying is fanciful, <laughs> but it might have a grain of truth. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, Last question about Hawaii. I, I read the article that you wrote in the Smithsonian about Hawaii being such a closed society. And I was kind of in the reality distortion field. So can you explain that? Because when I read that, I said, what is he talking about? So how is Hawaii so closed? It's closed because all islands are closed. An island is not one for all, all for one. An island is is 
typically a very divided place. There's a, the, Easter Island is probably the best example of it. Easter Island, although it's it's small and it's only one island, it's only one little dot in the Pacific, was constantly at war. Those big ice Easter Island statues were pulled down by island by islanders, not by missionaries, not by Captain Cook. It was by people fighting. What's the what is the most common material culture? item on an island. It's a weapon. Clubs, spears, knives made of shark's teeth. Club, I mean, I collect them actually. I have them. Here's one. Here's one from Samoa. Okay. See this? Okay. Do you see this? Okay. <laughs> I, okay, that's, I truly do, yes. Okay, but yes. I, I, have, I have I collect them. I have maybe a hundred of them here. I was going to write about them. But so why is it divided? It's divided because people are very suspicious. What's a characteristic of Hawaii is um, different weather systems, microclimates. Kali Valley weather is different from Waipahu weather. It's different from Waikiki weather. It's different from Kailua weather. So people live in different weather systems. They live in different landscapes, some fertile, some not fertile, some hot, some dry, whatever. So you say, what are the, ethnic divisions, religious divisions, weather divisions. That piece was about how an island is divided into separate islands. Even these, uh, uh, it's divided into Aupua'a, and Aupua'a is a, like a pie-shaped section. But you know mm-hmm. what? Two of them is a moku, an island. They, so there are islands upon islands. Why is it true in Hawaii? I would say every succeeding person who or ethnic group that comes on the island is suspicious. Did anyone come to an island with a good intention? <laughs> Seriously, do, can you? Yeah. So you got people on an island: Nantucket yeah. Island, Martha's Vineyard, the Isle of Wight, Ireland, Iceland, wherever it is. Someone comes ashore. Is that person coming ashore to do good, to improve the lives of people? No, they come to take something away, either or to create something for themselves. No one. No one ever comes on an island with altruistic motives. They come to convert, to develop, to do something. So the natural suspicions of people on island make them fractured and divided. I, so that's one thing. That, and that's not true of only of Hawaii. It's true of all islands. So island life, islanders are suspicious people. They're not welcoming. They're not like people in Iowa, Nebraska, Northern California, wherever. Come, you know, yeah, set up, build a golf course, everything's fine. And people have have a very good reason to be suspicious. So I think that's that's true of all islands. But I also think in Hawaii, you have the, uh, the Kanaka Maoli, the the native people, the islanders who have been here for thousands of years, or anyway, almost 2,000 years. No one's quite sure of the number, but as much as two. And they're diminished. 
My grandmother was Native American. She was from uh, a tribe called the Mononymy. She was born in Canada. She's French, spoke French, but but she was Native American. I'm very keenly aware of what happens to Native people. They get decimated. They get diseased. They get converted, and things happen to them. So the other suspicion in Hawaii, and also part of the piece, is Hawaiians who are not only suspicious of other people, but very reluctant to tell their story, saying, believing that that you're you're taking their story from them, and you might you might get it wrong. You might you you you, you might pervert the pervert or use it for your own ends. So there's, there's lots of reasons for this division, but it exists. And it's, it's perfectly understandable. So it's very hard to write about Hawaii. And when you do, uh, people will say, you've got it wrong, or that's not how, you know, that's not how it is. A previous novel of mine is called Hotel Honolulu. And when Hotel Honolulu came out, it was well-reviewed everywhere, except Hawaii. It, the, worst, <laughs> the worst review I got was from Hawaii, and it was from, from a guy at the University of Hawaii, a Howley guy, you know, saying I got it wrong. So, but there's a little bit of overlap with Hotel Honolulu and, and this book, Under the Wave at Waimea. There's a, there's a couple of episodes that, that connect it. But anyway, so you read the piece, I think it's really hard to write about Hawaii, and uh, and it's a thankless task too. <laughs> that that anyone who writes about that 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 when someone writes about Hawaii, the worst re- Hanya Yanagihara is has no reputation in Hawaii. Susanna Moore is kind of unknown. Writers here are not this kind of suspect. It's not a great thing to be a writer in Hawaii because you're seen to be someone taking something away, profiting on the, on the wisdom or the culture of being a kind of a parasite. Well, I mean, that's partly true. You are, I mean, a writer is sort of parasitical. But for all these reasons, Hawaii, I see Hawaii as very divided. And when you think about it, if you, let's say you're a Mormon, you would live in Laie. Let's say you, mm-hmm. you've recently come from the Philippines. Where would you go? You'd go to Waipahu, where you'd find... Lots of people speaking Ilocano. Would you go to Kahala? No, no. Who speaks Mm-mm. Ilocano and Kahala? No one. And when James Mitchell was married, his wife was Japanese extraction. He was forbidden to buy a house in Kahala because his wife was Japanese. That's wow. another story. The segregation. And there are stories from the 1960s of a Haole girl with her Japanese nanny going to the Outrigger Canoe Club. And they say, well, okay, you can come in, but the, but the, the nanny has to stay out there. They wouldn't let the nanny come to that. I mean, there's, they're, they're shameful <laughs> stories. And when you tell yeah. them or you remind people, people get very, very defensive well, about it. But my, father, very... my father-in-law was Chinese, but fourth generation or third generation anyway, and we were once at the, at the Elks Club, and he said, when I came back from the war, he was fighting in Guadalcanal. He said, I couldn't join this club. I said, why? He said, it was very exclusive, meaning it was 
they wouldn't let a Chinese guy join it. That's another reason for the, that memory is also another reason for the divisions. And, and as a person from Japanese ex- extraction, you may have heard stories or you may know this yourself, but there's a whole, there's a secret history of Hawaii just known to locals, just known to locals, not to the smiling travel writers yeah, writing yeah, about Mai yeah. Tais at sunset. Well, but. I t- to this day, I won't set foot in the Outrigger Canoe Club. There you go. Yeah, there absolutely. Go. Absolutely. And going to the Wildlife Country Club was you know, just off the table. I-, I have to tell you a little insight into my personality. So a few years ago, I started bringing my family to Hawaii. And using VRBO or Airbnb or whatever, we would always rent a house at Diamond Head because we wanted to be near the Waikiki Breaks. And I will tell you, there was a part of me that says, Guy, you have truly arrived because now you are in a house (laughs) in Diamond Head. So from Kalihi Valley to Diamond Head, that was a long journey. (laughs) No, I totally understand that. But but if you don't come... From a, a, a person who doesn't come from here doesn't understand. Imagine the journey. Imagine the distance from Waianae to Kahala. It, oh, it, it's an it's an unbridgeable distance. It's an unbridgeable yeah. distance. And I mentioned this in my piece. I think how a woman was saying how a, a dance a group of singers from Waianae were going to the mainland. And I said, well, they went to the mainland. Would you ever have them in? In Kahala, and she kind of looked at me like, "Well, why would any from from Y and I want to come to Kahala?" Like, <laughs> so, anyway, that's that's history. Okay. And that's the culture. And my wife said that 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 the uh, the Honolulu the advertiser was not delivered to local homes. It was only delivered to Howleys. She said there was, <laughs> <laughs> there was certain really yeah yeah yeah. She, uh, so that's why. <laughs> Chin Ho started the Star Bulletin. Really? That's what she said. I learned yeah. something. Anyway. So now, let's go from Hawaii to Mexico, because I want to hear about the genesis of On the Plains of Snakes. Okay, that's pretty simple. I, I was working on this book, the Waimea book, and a novel. A novel takes is, is hard. You sit down every morning and you think, well, now what? You know, you're writing. It's not like it doesn't flow. It's you. you, You're really kind of you're going very slowly and deliberately. Although I've written thirty plus works of fiction, it's never easy. It doesn't get easier. So I'm working on it, and Donald Trump starts running for president and disparaging Mexicans. And I remembered that one of a a formative experience that I had on the Mexican border was walking, it being in Southern Arizona and walking across the border from Nogales. Nogales, Arizona. Then there's a big fence. I mean, a really big iron, steel, rusty fence and with a door in it. I walk through the door and I think, holy God, I'm in Mexico and people are eating tacos and singing. And, and then I walk back. So I was thinking, I've, I've traveled my whole life, but I've never had the experience of go through the fence, and suddenly you're in another country, you walk through. National borders are not like that. If going in African countries or India and Pakistan or wherever, China and Russia, there's a, there's a road and, there's a, and, you, and you can see 
what this kind of no man's land. But I've never had the experience of going through a gun. So then, so Trump says they're rapists, they're murderers, they're gangbangers, they're coming, they're taking our jobs, and I don't know all this stuff, which it wasn't true. He was also saying the border is terrible. So I, I put my novel aside, and I thought, here's what I'm going to do. I want to write about Mexico. I speak Spanish, but I can improve my Spanish, and I'm going to write about the border, and then I'm going to buy a car, an old car, and drive around Mexico. Now, the last road trip book was a book called Deep South, where I drove around the South, and I discovered road trips are really fun. Also, because I live in Hawaii, where road trips are unthinkable. I thought you well, can drive to Kahala. Yeah, you can drive to Kahala. It's it's forty five miles. You know, okay. But 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 I recently drove from Boston to uh, L A. in six days, five hundred miles a day. I did it um, just after uh, Thanksgiving to get here, and you know it's the most fun you can have. Five nights, six days. So, but anyways, I thought I'm going to drive up and down the border, and then I'm going to drive into Mexico. And, and then the real incentive was people saying, "Don't do it! Oh, don't do it! It's dangerous! Don't do it! You're an old guy. What's the point?" And I was thinking, you know, whenever it says "Don't do it," I think, "Well, have you done it? Do you know?" It's like people saying, "Be careful surfing," and you say, "Well, are you a surfer?" No, but it looks <laughs> like I hate <laughs> ignorant advice. So the book. To answer your question, came out of there. Trump, my ignorance about Mexico, although I'd been there, but I'd never really spent a lot of time there. I'd never talked to a lot of Mexicans. I never lived in Mexico, and I'd never driven in Mexico. And I realized there's a lot of complications. To take a car into Mexico, you need insurance. You need an import vehicle import permit. You need to bribe people. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of paper. But once you do it, then you're bulletproof. You say, "I got all my paper. I got all this," and this, and, this. and the, the, the cops hassle you and they ask for bribes, so you have to play ball. But but I thought the other thing was travel is great when you're discovering something. And every day I was in Mexico, I discovered something—a new word, a new phrase, a new friend, a, a new item of food. I was constantly discovering, and that that helps you on your way. So I thought I'm going to write about Mexico. And destroy the stereotype. So, to write about Mexico so that people see their people. Furthermore, Mexico. You're sitting in a town that was once Mexico. It was Spanish. It was a Spanish town full of Mexicans and Spanish people. The whole of California was Mexico. Texaco was Mexico. New Mexico was Mexico. Arizona was Mexico. Nevada was Mexico until 1848. So. We're we're sitting on. We took this away from Mexico, the, the whole the West and the Southwest, and people don't understand that either. So having a sense of history is also important. That Mexico, it's a neighbor, and the other thing I thought I'm going to be a teacher, I'm going to be a student, I'm going to teach writing or English or something like that. Then I'm going to study Spanish, and then I wanted to go all the way down to Chiapas and meet the Zapatistas. So I did the whole thing, and I drove. I never had a problem driving, although I was in some, you know, bad weather and bad roads. It wasn't. It wasn't bad, and it was an experience that was so wonderful. And the book, you know, was well reviewed. It did well. It's still, in, you know, you can 
buy it. It's there years later. And I, I felt it's the, it was kind of an anti-Trumper book because the Trumpers hate Mexicans. But now I understand the whole immigration issue is complicated, but certainly to bring Mexicans into it is racist and horrible. The idea of Chinese illegal immigrants paying $50,000 to to guys to get them through a tunnel into San Diego that's a different story that that's not that's not the mexican story or afghans nigerians congolese syrians going over the border they're called special interest aliens that wasn't my subject that's a different subject the idea of of mexicans with a rich culture great writing things that people don't know about mexico great musicians great playwrights great artists as well as really clever people building chevrolets for us and all that and i told mexicans constantly we're on the same road the road that i took from my home in the east cape cod massachusetts i drove i said it's the same road i get on the road i drive down across the border that's the same road that we're on. It's always been the case. So that's where the book came from, politically. When I f- finished the trip, wrote the book, you know, writing a travel book isn't a big problem. The trip is the problem, getting through it, getting alive and all that. Then you sit down and you write the book. When I finished the book, then I resumed writing this novel, and then I finished this this novel. And that's So my last book was about Mexico, and, and then I finished this novel, and... That's where it came from. I put it aside. Nothing bad, quote-unquote bad, happened to you after all the warnings of don't go across there, don't drive there, all the warnings that you wrote about in that book, nothing happened? Yeah, a lot of that. Yes, I had a lot. <laughs> My main problems were from the police, so police stopping me and saying, your license plate is called Tarjeta, su uh, Tarjeta. I said, yeah, what's the problem? It said, it's not... It's not Mexican. I said, no, it's Massachusetts. I have Massachusetts law. But I said, I have these papers. I have my impro permit, and I show them papers. And they just brush them away. And I said, what do you want? The phrase is, how, how, you know, put on resolve esto caso. How can we resolve this issue? And then the cop says, sabes lo que puedo hacerte? Do you know what I could do to you? I said, no, what? I can take your car. I can impound your car. They call it a corralon. I can impound your car, and you'll have to pay money. You'll have to get a lawyer to get it. Wouldn't it be simpler to... I said, well, what do you want? $300. $300 is quite a big bribe. I mean, the first time they asked me for $300, I said, no. I don't have $300. And they said... Then they start screaming at you. Well, a policeman with a gun and... A, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, he's got a belt with all this stuff on it. Bullets handcuffs, mace, start screaming at me. Do you know what I can do to you? So I had to stick to my story. So I basically, I gave him my, he basically said, open your wallet. I opened the wallet. He just took all my money away. Very scary experience. I don't know whether you've had experience with a cop, 
No. Have you? No, no. I have in the States several times where I've made the mistake of contradicting them and they start screaming at you. And it's very bad. If you, if you raise your voice with a cop, that's a felony, that, you know, because you raise your voice. That's <laughs> and a, you're a white guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you can imagine if you're not a white guy and you, you give them lip. So I've had experience getting screamed at. Okay. But I never, I never felt intimidated. I thought, well, I'm going to get a, a lawyer. I'm going to report you. I'm going to, I'm going to get even with it. But in Mexico, you're in a foreign country and, and you're, you're screaming and also threatened. So that happened, you asked, that happened four times. The most, 300, 250, 200, and then just a guy saying, oh, guy, 180. So he wrote 180 on his palm. Bribe. It's just, so I had an a, a envelope of money, bribe money. I had it in various parts of the car. I didn't want to have it in one place. So the next time I was stopped by a cop, I just said, what do you want? He said, I want $250. I said, okay. And I just counted out the money <laughs> and I gave him the money. And he said, oh, I said, okay. I said, I'm going. He said, oh, yeah, just get on there, take a left, take a right. It was just like a, a tax for being a gringo, gringo tax, <laughs> oh, oh, with a car with bad license plates. Um, I, on the border, I met a lot of questionable people, but I never had a problem. I never went out at night on the border. I never drove at night. Mexicans say, don't drive at night. Didn't. Always put your car in a safe place if you're stopping at a motel or a hotel. Make sure that it's behind a, a wall, that there's a guard there. Don't leave your car on the street. It was a, a, a 2011 Nissan Murano. I drive a, a Forerunner on the on the mainland. I have a, a Toyota Forerunner. If I had a Toyota Forerunner, it would have been gone in 60 seconds. You know, the pump would just come up and say, "I want your car," and then you say, "Yeah, okay, here's my keys. I'll take my car." But other than that, luck, um, paying bribes when I, and and not putting myself in situations where. There was serious danger. The border is a dangerous place, but if you're going in daylight, I usually went with someone else. If I was in a in a tricky situation, I've been in dangerous places. I'm, I've I've had people shoot at me in Africa. I've had people pointing guns at me in New Guinea in the Tropical Islands. I, I was a, attacked by a. I was in my kayak. Some boys with spears. They were jabbing spears at me. So I've been in, in ticklish situations, but I didn't have a problem in, in Mexico. Actually, a Mexican told me, your problem is speaking Spanish. You should, not, you should pretend that you're a German and say, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. And he, I said, what's your suggestion? He said, try to win a Golden Globe for acting when you talk to a cop. In other words, I don't, I don't know what you're saying, like I'm German. <laughs> I, I don't speak Spanish because they don't speak oh, but, English. But it, clearly you were not kidnapped or murdered. No, many people are, but it tends to happen in certain places. There are certain places in Mexico where you cannot go. 
Veracruz, near Veracruz. There's, there are, it's controlled by a cartel that will, they see me in my car, they'll take my car, they'll, what will they do to me? They'll, they'll kidnap me, they'll want money, they'll want my car. That's certain Tampoco, Veracruz. Acapulco, around the state, Guerrero state, Acapulco, very bad for kidnappings, abductions, theft. Uh, but cartel but there are so places I, in California I wouldn't go either. Right? Well, I mean, there's places isn't in that true in any country. It's true of every city in the world. Uh, I think every city in the world has an area where it's probably a good idea not to look conspicuous. I have okay. a friend in Hawaii of Japanese extraction, third generation, I guess, was driving a BMW in, I think it was Arizona, but it might have been Arkansas. And he was as Japanese looking as you are. And he had the BMW and a man came up and said, nice car. And he said, yeah, he said, I want to buy it. And my friend, it was at a gas station. The guy said, it's not for sale. He said, yes, it is. I want your car. And gave him a hard time. This guy, he was hassled because he, he, he was conspicuous and was driving a nice car. And the guy gave him a major hard time and was going to take his car from him. Hijack him, in other words. Carjack him. And somehow he got out of it. But he told me, I will never drive a BMW in middle America again. He'll go to places where he's not so conspicuous. Where do people have problems? When you look conspicuous. My wife is of, ja of Chinese extraction. On Cape Cod, she's so conspicuous. I mean, people stare at her thinking like, what? They're bewildered that a black person in a white community, a white person in a black community, an old person among young people, I wrote a piece about the New York subway, and I said, who gets mugged? They said, conspicuous people. If you're old, if you're sitting by the door and you're old, you'll be robbed because you're old. You're old and you're among a lot of punks. Or, you know, an old person walking in an area where just a, there are a lot of punks. You know, who, who, they'll say, well, here's a sitting duck. We're going to take you, we'll take your, your handbag or whatever it is. So that it, being conspicuous can be fatal. In Mexico, in Mexico City, it's less possible. Mexico City is a multiracial place. But in other places, a gringo is conspicuous. Gringos in Mexico tend to live in communities, though. I mean, there's communities where there's just Canadians. There's communities where there's mm -hmm. Germans, where there's just Americans. And San Miguel de Allende is full of gringos, safe place. Other places, not so safe. But if you travel saying, I look conspicuous, therefore I can't go there, you'll never write anything. I've been conspicuous my whole life. I lived in Africa for almost seven years. I was the most conspicuous person there. But I managed by speaking the language, actually. One time a guy was pointing a gun at me. Fortunately, it was in a country where I spoke the language, in Malawi. And I could speak the language. I had been in the Peace Corps. And I could speak. And I said, I'm not your enemy, I'm not going to, I don't have a gun, it's not a problem, just relax, you know, talking to him. But he had a gun pointed at my face. Not not an enjoyable experience at all. So, Let's suppose Joe Biden calls you up and says, so, Paul, 
What's your advice for the U.S.-Mexico immigration issue? What would you tell him? The first thing he has to do is appoint an ambassador who's really good. And, and this is true of all countries. He needs ambassadors in Guatemala, El Salvador, Costa Rica, Honduras, and Mexico. Really good diplomatic relations. That's the first thing you need. Trump decimated the Foreign Service. So the Foreign Service was full of political appointees, Trumpers, and career diplomats were phased out of the Foreign Service. So the Trump presidency didn't destroy the Foreign Service, but weakened it so that our relations with other countries were terrible. It have been terrible. So the first thing I'd say with the immigration crisis is we need diplomacy. You need someone who can talk to the Mexican president and about the border. The border, I mean, strangely enough, NAFTA is profitable for American companies making stuff in Mexico. Mexican companies don't make stuff in the States. So NAFTA is very, very one-sided. And actually, it, it hasn't really helped Mexican workers, but it really has helped Bose headphones, Chevrolet, people making audio equipment, plastic toys, rubber tires, you know, all that mm-hmm. stuff, stuff. And they make it 100 yards from the border. So the border is a very, very important thing. The immigration issue is, interestingly enough, not a Mexican problem. Illegal Mexican immigrants are not the problem. Mexican illegal immigration has diminished. It's mainly from Central America. So the reason why you need diplomacy is that Central American Hondurans, Guatemalans, Salvadorians are coming into Mexico and they're they're in the board. They're desperate people. What this, so the solution has to be diplomatic. There has to be some sort of regulation. It can't be open borders, obviously. If you have open borders, it will be open season for Nigerians, South Africans, Indians, Pakistanis. The, the prisons in Arizona are full of Indians and Pakistanis and Africans. They're not full of Mexicans. So it's, it's a category called special interest aliens. And they're mixed in. So there's desperate Central Americans, there's Chinese, there's special interest aliens, and then there's Mexicans who are coming to Santa Cruz to fix your roof. But Mexicans aren't the problem, but immigration is a problem. How you fix it is, is with regulation, obviously, but also with diplomacy, because the border belongs to two countries, Mexico and the United States. The other problem is the cartels. And uh, the cartels, I discovered, own the border in most places. So if you want to get across the border, you see a cartel member, no matter who you are, and you pay him anywhere from $2,000, $3,000, up to $80,000, if you've got the money. Syrians were selling their houses and their land, getting a chunk of money, going to Mexico, and just paying a lot of money to a cartel to get across the border. Some people have money. The Mexicans or the Central Americans who go across don't have money, but they become uh, slaves or mule drug running and so forth. It's a very, very complicated problem, exacerbated by uh, gun running too. So all the, all the guns come from the States. And there was that 
scandal under the Obama administration where it was called the Fast and Furious, where they were allowing cartels to buy guns in the States, thinking they could trace the guns. One of those guns was used to kill a Border Patrol officer. And that and because that was associated with, with Biden and Trump politicized the border, Border Patrol unions are Trumpers. Border Patrol officers are Trumpers. <laughs> because they associate a weak border policy with, with Biden and Obama. But it first has to start with diplomacy and a policy, a policy on the border. And because I'm not, I'm not for open borders won't help. If you, if you have open borders, what's the point? You, you, you don't really, it, it can't be unregulated. But so I'm not a knee jerker on that. So it seems to me that you were banned in Malawi. You were banned in Singapore. Let's say that Trump administration banned this book. Would would that be just like the hat trick? Do you have a little bit of pride being banned? My problem in, in, in but being, I was deported from Malawi. I was in the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps said, make friends. So I made friends. I could speak the language. I made friends with a group of people who became rebels. Of the And they, they had a plot to assassinate the prime minister. Unwittingly, I did a favor for this group of guerrillas. And when the plot unraveled, the, the, the prime minister at the time who was going to be assassinated, he was called Dr. Hastings Banda, told the, the ambassador that I was in with uh, plotting against him. He deported me. I was kicked out of the Peace Corps. I was fined a lot of money. And I was screwed. It was 1965. I was on the verge of going to Vietnam. So I did what any rebel would do. I contacted the Africans and I said, you got me in this fix. Get me out of it. And they said, okay, we will get you out of it. We're going to get you a job at a university in Uganda. We have contacts there. We're going to make you a professor. So with a BA degree <laughs> and just having helped these Marxist guerrillas, I then had a job at one of the most prestigious universities in East Africa, the university, Makerere University. And I was there for four years as a distinguished professor because these guys were connected. And that led to going to Singapore, where I had a job at the University of Singapore, which was great, actually, because I was then... Although I still had this crappy degree, I had a distinguished career as a university professor. I got to Singapore. My contract wasn't renewed, and it wasn't renewed because I was a Haole, and they wanted to they wanted local people in the thing. But also then I wrote a book about it, St. Jack. The book was banned. I wasn't banned. The book was banned. The movie was banned. But now everyone's, we're all happy. They, the book is read widely it's available in singapore my life you know you know the game snakes and ladders snake most lives of my life more than others up and down up and down so it's been a, a very interesting life i haven't written my autobiography but i've written about this i've had some extremely unfortunate experiences but i've also had some great luck i'm now knocking on wood everything's hunky-dory now i'm fine but but <laughs> but my books were banned in south africa they were banned and because my first three novels were set in africa when and i couldn't sell a book in south africa when nelson mandela became prime minister uh they changed the educational system 
my books were unbanned. And my novel, The Mosquito Coast, became a textbook or a, a set book in schools. My publisher called me in about 1990 or 91, and he said, we've just sold 200,000 copies of the mosquito we've had an order for 200,000 you know 200,000 books <laughs> each book is 10 bucks i'm making 20% of it he said we've just had an order for 200,000 it's going to be in the schools in south africa so from no books to book so you, i've met south africans they say oh you're paul Theroux. I, we i read we studied your your book mosquito coast and the, and then the luck of it so down sometimes, up other times. It's not the worst thing in the world to, you know, your life doesn't end when you've been declared a prohibited immigrant or you've been fired. And I've been, I've been fired a few times. The best thing is, and I, do you have a job? Do you have an actual salary job? Not exactly. I'm chief evangelist for a company out of Australia called Canva, but I decided to take all compensation in stock. Not there you money go. Okay, because... so you don't have a job. You, you're, <laughs> yeah, I you're don't. Like me. You're, just, you're winging it. You're winging. It. Yes. So, so the, my last job was in Singapore, and after that, I thought I don't, I don't want a job. I don't want a, a boss. I'll just wing it, and it's worked out quite well. I really don't have a salary. My kids. I have two boys. One of them. Uh, makes documentaries in England, Louis. And my other son, Marcel, writes novels. No one in my family has a job. So I, I'm a very bad example, actually. But but your question was about being banned, if, being deported, being fired, and so forth. But if if the Trump administration had banned planes, it would be, I think, an honor. It would be. Actually, the best thing that can happen to you is that someone, in, uh, an influencer, reads your book. Do you know how James Bond became such an important book, an important writer, the films, the books of it? No. You may not remember. John Kennedy was asked, who's his favorite author? He said, my favorite author is Ian Fleming. And people were saying, who is Ian Fleming? And said, he writes the James Bond book. Jack Kennedy loved James Bond books. This would have been about 1962, 61 or 62. If you look at it, Kennedy was the opinion former that made James Bond famous. I have a friend, Bill Finnegan, he wrote Barbarian Days. Have you read it? Yeah. Okay. Oh, God, yes. Who was his biggest cheerleader? Obama. Obama. Mm. Obama said, and by the way, Bill Finnegan gave me a blurb for this book. It's a great blurb. It's on the cover of the, of the, of the copy. Extraordinary book, wonderful. So that's going to be very helpful. I get Bill Finnegan on my, in my corner. But so if Trump, the question is, it's a no-brainer. Trump says, this book is crap. <laughs> Trump, a man who's never read a book in his life, that says this book, it bans it. Yeah. Actually, I was... A reader, when I was a very young reader, 13, 14 years old, lots of books were banned. Henry Miller was banned. D.H. Lawrence was banned. William Burroughs was banned. And I, I, I sought out those books. Those are the books that I wanted to read. I thought, well, they're banned. Uh, James Joyce's Ulysses was banned. Those are the books. You think, why are they banned? Because they have power. Someone's afraid of them. Socialism once said, 
no great writer was ever honored by a government because writers are like a second government. The only writers that a government or a regime recognizes are minor writers, second-rate writers. They're afraid of the great writer. I'm not. I'm not saying I'm a great writer. But, but yes, you are. But no, no, no. But, 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 but government. It, when you look at it, the, a government never recognizes an important writer. The, the groundbreaking. Like, well, well Solzhenitsyn himself, for example. But James Joyce, Herman Melville. Yep. Herman Melville died. They misspelled his name in his obituary. Three people came to his funeral. He was nobody. No one recognized him. But I'm not putting myself in that class. But I'm saying that that it's in the government's interest to honor the writer that's that's not going to cause a problem for them, and to ban, <laughs> well, to ban to ban the writer. I like Trump banning my book for being dangerous. RNC bought hundreds of thousands of copies of Trump's son's book, right? So <laughs> that's the kind of thing that happens. But I mean, yes. But but that book's that book has no no future. I tend to think, no matter what happens, if a book is good, it will find an audience. It will it will do well. You don't really need mm-hmm. uh, Obama to love it or Kennedy to love it. it, it good things will happen, but they happen yes. quicker with social media opinion <laughs> yes. formers and and someone selecting it about biden though his question i mean i don't know this is just an aside i don't have any indication that biden is a big reader i think he's a he probably reads policy books and he probably reads political biography but i i don't have any indication that he's um, the reader that for example obama obama's a passionate reader Reads everything. I met Obama at, in Haleiva at, at, at the Kuaina hamburger place. And he said, I said to him, it was, um, it was um, before 2006, I guess. And I said, you're Senator Obama. He said, yeah. I said, can I, can I make a suggestion to you? And he said, what? I said, please run for president. I'll vote for you and I'll give you money. He said, who are you? I said, Paul Theroux. He said, I've read your book. He said, sit yeah. down. I want to talk to you. He was there with his sister and his kids. And we were having a hamburger. Funny. Because, yeah, yeah, great, great thing. So he's a reader. Kennedy was a reader. I think Carter was a reader. Reagan wasn't a reader. Maybe the Republicans aren't readers. Uh, um, <laughs> but, but, um, but I don't know about Biden. It, it, it's an interesting speculation of he doesn't show any indication that he's a reader. Does he to you? No. But listen. But he's a great you know, guy and, and, and we yeah. need him. We need him. But I think I think if, if it was introduced to me, he'd say, Paul, what do you do, Paul? Yeah, right. <laughs> I have a chicken farm in Haleiva. <laughs> So anyway, I have three more questions for you. Okay. So question number one is, you are arguably one of the world's greatest travelers. What's your advice on how to travel? This is a bad period, obviously. 
And I wrote a piece for the New York Times exactly a year ago about a lockdown. It was about being locked down mm-hmm. in, in, in Kampala, in Uganda, during an emergency. And we were stuck under a curfew for almost a month. And it was, <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. But it was, um, we were just stuck. You couldn't go out. It was dangerous fighting. But it was like a pan, it was like a virus. It was like an infection. It lifted. And I, I said, we're all going to learn something from this. And here it is. A year later, I wrote the piece. We're still locked down, more or less. My advice, obviously, is you have to be ingenious and like read about travel, travel vicariously. The problem will be solved in the way I believe that it was solved in the 1950s and 60s when there was tuberculosis, yellow fever, sleeping sickness, various malaria, various ailments for which you needed a passport. You needed WHO yellow card. When I went to Africa in 1963, I had my arm was swollen with shots against diphtheria, yellow fever, sleeping sickness, everything. I got them. I was in Syracuse, New York at the doctor. And we went and we had so many shots that I remember it took days to get them all. And then they were all written up in the little book. So when I arrived and I went a a roundabout route, Nairobi and then Rhodesia and then Malawi, I was always showing this passport, this little thing. That's the future. The future is... Even I've had my first jab of Moderna, and I have a little car that resembles the, the passport. The, the, the solution is that everyone is vaccinated. How you get everyone vaccinated, I don't know, and especially with the, with the mutant strains. But the future is, is going to be, no one's going to be safe until they're vaccinated. And no one's going to be able to travel unless you have proof of, of vaccination. When I came to Honolulu from L.A., on uh, December 3rd last year, I had to show a piece of paper that I had been tested and that I was negative. And I had, and I, I, I had to have the test within 72 hours of, of coming. The answer is a lot of paperwork. Then people will be able to travel. Well, but no, I, that's at one level. But assuming we handle all this administrative stuff, but I mean more philosophically, how do you travel? Is it it's not just about staying at Ritz Carlton's and Airbnbs. And h- how does one truly travel on an intellectual level, like to really understand someplace? I think it's a, a greater opportunity than ever because the pandemic has been transformative. Every country in the world has been changed by it. Some for the better, some for the worst. And a writer, a traveler, is doing nothing if he or she is not writing about change, about discovery, about and reporting back about it. So how you travel is not for pleasure. I've never really traveled for pleasure. I've always traveled looking for a story and looking for change, trying to make a friend, make a discovery, whatever. So the, the traveler from now on Every traveler with a brain is going to be writing about the infection, the effects of it, death, crowded hospitals, tragedy, or people overcoming it. There's kind of, there's a move out of cities now. So 
country life is more attractive to people than it ever was. And I think that, that's a big, that will be a big factor. The problem, I'm in touch with a, an African doctor. He, he emailed me today and he said he doesn't think that, because I want to go to Africa. I, my, the first country I went to was in Central Africa 50 years ago. And I want to go back there because I've been writing about it all these years. I want to see the effects of it. He said, I don't think you'll be able to go there until 2023. But he said, but maybe 2022, it, it might be possible. He was talking about mutant strains of the disease, chain, different uh, variants of the disease. But the answer is you travel to write about it. And it will be about the plague, about the the pandemic, about the it won't be about it won't be about a golf course, it won't be about a new hotel, it won't be about a great meal you have. At the background will always be the infection. Probably for the foreseeable future, certainly for the next five to ten years. And I have one more travel book to write, one I really do want to write. And it's about visiting revisiting countries I've been in and visiting new countries and also about teaching. I would like to teach in a lot of different places. I'd like to teach in Africa. I'd like to teach in Pakistan, in, in, in China, in the Philippines, in Samoa, and also in Chicago, inner cities. I, I would just like, and I would like to teach a short story, the same story in different places. So that's my, the, my ambition, to go to a lot of different places to talk, what if people to, to find out what do people want? What are they worried about? But I know that the subject is going to be the pandemic, and okay. and I don't know whether the vaccine will protect it. You know, was a total prophylactic against the, against the disease. But we'll know because I think think of how events have moved. That a year ago people thought Trump, Trump was saying gone by the summer. Even some people were saying, well, maybe we'll get over it by Easter. Maybe the summer, maybe the hot weather. Maybe <laughs> A year later, people are still speculating. So we're in this very interesting period of we don't know anything. We don't know anything. We're Month by month, we're discovering. Today, the death, uh, death in the United States is half a million. It's, I just looked it up. It's half a million. That's mind-boggling. Unbelievable. Because I started tracking it when it started. Every week, how many uh, cases, how many deaths. And I, I looked today, yeah, half a million. So who would it get? No one guessed this. No one guessed this. And I think that one of the ways of looking at the future is to seize the present, to look at the present intensively. And because the seeds of the future are in the present, which but not everyone sees them. And maybe if this had been seen, if the, a year ago, if people had looked at it and looked at other plagues, other pandemics, they would have said, a year from now, we're, we're still going to be in trouble. But people were saying, cheerleaders were saying, politicians, in the room, you don't need a mask. It's going to be okay. Or Trump was saying, you know, drink hydrochloric acid or whatever the hell it was. But so we don't know. But... I think it makes travel more interesting. It will make it more of an, invent, an adventure. And the, the frivolity of travel is disappearing. The seriousness of travel is, is the important thing. Because the thing that you learn in travel, when you're a little guy, 
just setting off and you go to a foreign country, you realize how small you are, how unimportant you are, and how important other people are, and how you have to listen. A travel book isn't about eat, pray, love, I had a great meal, I went on a wine tour down the Rhine, I played golf in 50 places. That's not travel. Travel is you're small, the world is big, there's a lot to learn. And the pandemic is a tragedy, but it's also an opportunity, it's an opportunity for, for a writer, for a writer to, um, to, to get in, inside it. And what is the real story? How is this actually affecting people? And it's affecting people profoundly. Second to the last question. As a writer to another writer, I'd love to know your tools of the trade. Are you writing it down on a legal tablet? Are you working in Microsoft Word? How do you write a book? I write a book with this pen. This is a ballpoint pen. Every book I've written, the first draft I've written with a ballpoint pen. This a pen very this is a Lamy pen. And I've written it on, I don't have an example here, but I write in longhand. This book, the, the Waimea book, the surfer book, is all written. I sold my papers to the Huntington Library four years ago. They had to send a truck to pick up my papers. <laughs> they sent not thumb drives. Literally? Yeah, they, they sent a truck. It was a small van truck. But it was a truck and, and three guys. And it filled the truck with papers. I have a paper archive. I may be one, I'm one of the last people with a paper archive. You could talk about word processing programs. I wouldn't know what the hell you were talking about. I use, I guess I use Microsoft Word. I use a program because I write in longhand and then I make a, a, a scribble draft. Then I recopy it in longhand. And then when I have a manuscript, which is all written, but then I photocopy it for safety. When I have the whole thing written out, then I put it down and then I, I type it. I used to use a typewriter and now I use a word processor, but I don't write on a word processor. I don't write on a computer. A computer is, to me, is just, I, I, I use for typing, which is very relaxing. A typewriter was very exhausting, banging a typewriter. So traveling... I, t I don't have any technology. I have a phone, but, uh, but I don't tape record anyone. I take notes, and I, I don't... I've trained myself to, to transcribe people's conversations after the fact. So I have a conversation with you about all the things we've talked about, and then I go away quietly, and I write down conversation that's been that's a, a mental exercise that i've practiced over the years it seems to work i don't i've never tape recorded anyone i've never done you know a zoom or a skype with anyone i travel with notebooks and i fill up notebooks and i have the note then i take the notebooks and i write it out so it's all ink pen and ink pen and ink pen and ink and okay um and then then the pleasurable thing is is typing it and it's work, but I don't have a secretary because the secretary wouldn't be able to read everything. And when I'm typing, I'm also expanding, enlarging upon it. The process of writing is very mysterious. And when I don't think you can teach someone how to write fiction, but you can teach them methods. 
you can't make them funnier or more intelligent, but you can tell them. And sometimes when people ask me, I wrote this thing, but I'm not happy with it. My advice, I'm not a teacher, but I say, I say well, do you want my advice? Yeah, yeah, well, I'd... and I say, well, here's what you should do. You should put, sit down at a desk, put it down, and recopy it in longhand. And do you know the answer I always get? Oh, that's too much trouble. I couldn't do that. It's 5,000 words or 10,000 words or it's tooth or whatever it is. That's too much trouble. I couldn't do that. I've done it my whole life. <laughs> yeah. and, and when someone says that, I say, you're not a writer. You will never be a writer. I don't tell them that, but I think you will never be a writer because writing is, is labor. It's work. It's, it's very hard. Writing, thinking, rewriting. And writing in longhand slows you down. So I can't tell you the number of times I said, oh, you got to copy it out in longhand. Oh, no, I couldn't do that. Well, Shakespeare did it. Herman Melville did it. You know, I did it. Lots of people do it. You, the, the, a computer tends to speed things up. It doesn't, you need, most of writing is thinking. It's thinking, what am I going to write? It's not tapping away, you know, with your fingers. So I think that the hard thing is I, I write at the beach, as I told you. I, I have a folding chair. I sit at the beach and I write on a clipboard. And, I, and I, then I recopy it. And I recopy it. And, recopy. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, look at the first page of this book. I rewrote that page I won't say 50 times, maybe 30 times. I sat down and re I rewrote it in longhand. I retyped it. I corrected it. I retyped it. So the, just the, the first page, of, I, th I wanted the first page to set the mood of it so that you know the guy. Where is he? And I could say even maybe the first chapter I rewrote, rewrote, rewrote. It wasn't okay. just typed. And I don't know whether it shows or not, but you... I could tell, I mean, if I read the book, if that was somebody else's book, I would say this book was written slowly and carefully. Whether it's a success or a failure or not, it's beside the point. But you could tell, but, it, but it's, it's written with care. Not, it's not just typed. So technology okay. has not served me very well, except that, <laughs> I mean, I think that, a word processing program is stupendous. I think it's the, the best thing ever. It's beyond Gutenberg, way beyond Gutenberg. So, I mean, that's a great thing to write with light okay. rather than type. I'm going to send you something that maybe will help you, but that's I won't get into it. It's a tablet pencil base that you might like. Okay. And it's called a Remarkable Tablet, and it sponsors the Remarkable People podcast. Well, that was a smooth in-context plug for the Remarkable Tablet. And now we have the Remarkable Tablet-sponsored question, which is, how does Paul do his best and deepest thinking? Because the Remarkable Tablet will help you do the same. It is a single-purpose tablet. It doesn't defocus you with email, social media, and all the other craziness that can take you off track. So my very last question, although we've been touching on this for quite a while, is a very direct question, which is, how do you do your best and deepest thinking? A very, very good question. But I would say two ways. One is the ordinary meditation of just sitting quietly at the beach 
looking at Cayenne Point, looking at the Pacific Ocean, just sitting there reflecting. But there's actually a better way. It's, for me, riding a bike, paddling a kayak, walking, walking especially. But I sometimes ride my bike to, to Mokalaia and then I go up to Peacock Flats up the ridge. I did it on last Sunday. I got a flat tire actually. But riding my bike alone, up a steep grade, but so you have to go slowly. That I think, I don't know this is true for everyone, but for me, the reflect uh, uh, that, that, that there's something about exercise. Maybe runners feel it. Walking definitely is one. That that uh, my mind begins to solve problems, and I get ideas, and I can't write them down, but I refine them as I'm exercising. And I'm not talking about vigorous exercise. Riding a bike, I'm talking about maybe riding along a road or paddling a kayak on a smooth ocean, not fighting the waves, but but there's something about the evenness of exercise. I compiled an anthology of travel uh, 10 years ago, maybe. It's called the Tao, of, the Tao of Travel. And the Tao of Travel is about every travel book that made an impression on me. And one of the chapters is called it is solved by walking. It's from a Latin, solvitor ambulando. Solvitor ambulando means it's solved by walking. You have a problem, and your wife is doing the dishes, and the kids are watching television. You leave the house, and you walk, and you walk. And the more you walk, you will be solved by walking. So that, there are a lot of books about walking. Henry David Thoreau has a great essay about walking, but there are many great Rousseau was a walker. Henry William Wordsworth was a walker. A lot of walkers. And so the answer is sitting quietly, but I, I'm restless. And I find it hard to get a meditative pose. I suppose doing yoga might help. But definitely, there's a certain kind of exercise. It wouldn't be weightlifting. It wouldn't be surfing. <laughs> but it might be swimming. It might be walking. It might be riding a bike that would... That, that would allow you, allows me to reflect and, and to have good ideas, I think. I'm just curious. So does Paul Thoreau, does he ride like some $25,000 road bike that weighs about two pounds? Or is it a beater bike Schwinn that one speed coaster brakes? I got two bikes. Neither one is. A, a, the guy I ride with has a $9,000 bike, a seven. It's called a seven. It's a great bike. Nine grand. The most expensive bike I, I bought was a Merlin a titanium bike, $4,000 bike. I bought it in San Francisco. It's City Cycle. So it's a great bike, but it's not a climber bike. It's a road bike. And now you could buy it for two. Titanium bikes are now are cheaper. The bike I was riding the other day is just a, probably costs $1,500, $2,000. I bought it secondhand. It's a good climber bike, specialized bike. But I, it doesn't prevent you from getting a... I, I got a thorn, a Chiave thorn in the tire. And I, so I went about three and a half miles up and I and got the flat. And then I had to walk three and a half miles back to the road, back to my car. <laughs> I was looking at bike, when I got my tire fixed yesterday, I was looking at bikes. One bike was 10 grand. And my question, I, did, I was going to ask the guy, but I didn't. 
my question was going to be, if I buy this $10,000 bike, will I be able to get up that mountain quicker? The answer is maybe, maybe not. My, 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 the happiest day of my life in Hawaii, one of them, was riding my bike to the top of Haleakala. So I, rode, I started down a place called Hosma uh, Campground, and I camped, and, that I, and I rode to the top. And it, I just remember going very, very slowly, particularly above 8,000 feet. <laughs> and, but I, but I, I, I do think that, um, you know, that there's a type of work, gardening makes you think. Certain, certain activities induce meditation. And so I'd be, I'd be down with that. As far as expensive, my outrigger canoe cost five grand. I got it new. That seems a lot of money for a, a kayak, but it's Kevlar, <laughs> carbon, carbon fiber, uh, and um, weighs 19 pounds. That's great. Speaking of a sort of small world, so one of the people that I interviewed for this podcast was the founder of Specialized. If you will ever consider an electric specialized bike, no, no, oh no. my God, I have a Como electric bike. It's a life-changing bike, but... <laughs> I don't want an electric bike, but uh, I would like I would like a top of the line. I I'll I'll even specialized. I'll even endorse it. I would. I, but, okay. but the one that I saw the other day, um, <laughs> it might have been a specialized. So the, the 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 top of the line specialized bike. I have a specialized. I mean, I get a lot of money. I, I, it's not about money. It's it's just about the bike was was good, but it's not about money. But it's, but but I'd like to know. Based on the bike that I have, which is a great bike, but it's it's beat up bike. I mean, the guy I go with says your bike's rusty. What? I said, well, it's Hawaii. This is the North Shore. Of course, it's going <laughs> it's got rusty parts, but it goes. You know, it goes. but I'd like to know whether I can buy non electric bike. Whether I whether there's a specialized bike better than mine you know, that, that can get me up quicker, <laughs> like more gears. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed interviewing Paul. Lots to learn from Paul. Writing, traveling, hanging out with locals. All kinds of good stuff here. My thanks to Rick Smolin, the famous photographer and guest in a previous Remarkable People podcast. He made this interview possible. My thanks to Jeff C. and Pig Fitzpatrick, who, as always, helped make this podcast great. Until next time, I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. Mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.